Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm going to come out and run. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Katie. We're pretty one look. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams means to a copy tail and just pull the head of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little Cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be... I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, uh, Especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Steve Banerjee, creator of the world-famous male stripper troupe The Chippendales, would do anything to protect his brand. And what a brand it was. At their peak, The Chippendales were raking in millions of dollars a year. Controlling and consumed by greed, Steve had everything he could dream of thanks to his thrusting empire of man meat, but it was never enough. In the end, he resorted to arson, extortion and murder to retain his power. Welcome to part one of our two-part special on the Chippendales murder. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our shambolic and beer-breathed first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only episodes where we pass strands of cooked spaghetti and shots of Cinzano out to listeners. And they receive them. What does that even mean? Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. We're still in lockdown and recording separately. Yep, only 4,000 years of lockdown left. Yeah, then we'll be good to go. Right as rain, back to normal. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Soman Banerjee came to the USA seeking the American dream. Born on October 8, 1946 into a family of printers in Bombay, now named Mumbai, the ambitious Banerjee emigrated to Canada in 1969 and then shortly afterwards to the United States. Starting off in Los Angeles, he adopted the more Western name of Steve. With the need to achieve drummed into his head from an early age, Steve worked hard and within a couple of years purchased a mobile gas station in the upscale posh neighbourhood of Playa del Rey, not far from LAX. He didn't plan to stay for long. Steve dressed for the career he wanted, not the career he had. So he wore arseless leather chaps when working at the gas station? Well, not quite. Ah, pity. Steve sported fancy suits with silk ties. He read Forbes magazine and studied the works of Giorgio Armani, Kelvin Klein and Steven Spielberg. He also thought Walt Disney was the tits. (laughs) After a couple of years of pump and gas, he sold the mobile service station and bought a rundown club called the Round Robin. 
Steve had the idea of turning it into a fancy backgammon club, which was hugely popular at that time. Steve renamed a dilapidated bar in Overland Avenue, the Destiny 2. Why Destiny 2? Destiny 1 was the gas station. That's a very stripper-like name for a gas station. I like it. So do I. Destiny 2 was not the huge success that Steve had hoped for. The god-awful band, which were still under contract, played most nights to a near-empty bar. It was dimly lit, had a tiny dance floor, and patrons' feet stuck to the sticky, threadbare carpet. Steve's new lawyer, Bruce Nayan, was studying for the bar exam at the club because it was more quiet than the library. (laughs) In its first two weeks of business, Destiny 2 lost $5,000. A few promotions like Ladies' Night helped out, but not enough. Steve tried everything from magic shows to dinner theatre to mud wrestling. Magic shows failed to bring in the big bucks? I find that very difficult to believe. It probably needed a ventriloquist show. Oh, that would have done it. A couple of years into running Destiny 2, mostly into the ground, Steve met Ray Cologne. Ray's car had broken down and he was waiting for a tow. Ray spotted the bar and he first thought that it was abandoned and then decided to go inside and get a cold beer while he waited. Ray was former US Navy but got kicked out for pinching a Playboy magazine addressed to another soldier straight out of a mail slot. Ray had a chequered past and ties to the LA Mafia. Once Ray and his crew, under the direction of his mentor, Rocky Delamo, had put a bullet through the hand of an accountant who'd been skimming a little cash off the top each week. The number cruncher was shot in his left hand as the mob bosses still thought the crooked bookkeeper was valuable. But he could no longer play piano accordion. Well, not well. Steve lamented to Ray that his club was a big old stinking pile of poo. Ray suggested changing Destiny 2 to a more disco vibe. Disco was the bomb, explained Ray. He told Steve to sack the crappy band, get some mirror balls and hire a DJ. Steve listened to Ray because he thought he had good ideas. The next day, the terrible band's contract was bought out and a huge booming sound system was installed, followed by colourful lights, a mirror ball and a smoke machine. Ray's advice was solid gold. In the next few years, the genre named disco went absolutely fucking bananas. Well, it inspired that show, Solid Gold. And the Solid Gold Dancers. Oh my God, I love that show. Yeah, everyone loves the Solid Gold Dancers. I wanted to be one. Destiny 2 started doing better than all right. Steve also started to promote the shit out of it. A different gimmick every night got the jive-talking punters sauntering through the doors in droves, wearing silver-hot pants, satin jackets, permed hair and open-necked shirts. I think we might need a Hey Baby up in here. Um, all right. Hey Baby! (laughs) Ray was hired by Steve as a consultant and Ray had plenty of good ideas. Electric bell-bottoms that shave your legs as you wear them? I mean about the club, but that is a good idea. Thank you. Free drinks were given to the beautiful people, so the not-so-beautiful people hung around buying more booze to get the courage to flirt with them. It's a solid business model. Steve built on that idea with dime drinks. All drinks cost 10 cents till 11pm, when the prices were jacked up to normal price. That's fucking genius. By 11 o'clock, everyone is so pissed they don't care what they pay for drinks. That's right. The staff loved it too. They made a truckload of cash in tips. A promotion like that would be totally illegal these days, especially in Australia. Oh yeah. But Destiny 2's success wasn't enough for Steve. After the bar closed, Steve Ray and his lawyer Bruce would scheme for hours on how to rake in more cash. I mean, the disco craze was obviously going to last forever, right? Yeah. But there must be another way to wring a few more dollars out of it. At one such meeting, Ray and Bruce told Steve that they loved the redesign of his office. Steve's back office now had timber walls, a dark wood mantle and fireplace, high back wing chairs and a mahogany desk. It looked like the inside of some snooty, exclusive, member-only Englishman's club. Fancy. Fancy indeed. The trio speculated Destiny 2 could have the same makeover. They called the look Opulent Ambience. Guaranteed to deliver a more discerning and wealthy patron. In March 1978, after six weeks of renovations, during which the club stayed open somehow, (laughs) Destiny 2 was relaunched under the fanciest fuck name, Chippendales. Named after Thomas Chippendale, the 18th century master cabinet and furniture designer. 
Did he, like, have a reputation for getting his gear off? Just stand up his jorts, Tara. He was a pioneer for never nudes everywhere. Ah, good on him. The Smick Posh Club was an instant success. The parquet dance floor pulsed with lights at the front and in the rear, high back chairs surrounded teak chess and backgammon board topped mahogany tables. Just like your place, Barney. Damn straight. Porsches, Mercedes and BMWs rolled in, keeping the valets busy, while inside the waitresses served hot hors d'oeuvres to the rich patrons, bought wholesale frozen and nuked in a microwave. Mm, poor patrons. No, the volivants. Oh, the volivants, huh? That's right. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard you say that. Uh, I, I, I like those little tiny hot dogs. Yeah, you do. Are they volivants though? They're not volivants. No, they're just little dickies, pigs in blankies. Soon after, Steve, who was always looking for another gimmick to further line his pockets, stumbled across another club in Redondo Beach. The biker bar was having some success with a strip show for women. Hey, baby. Mm. Steve scratched his chin and then possibly his balls and thought he would bring a similar, if higher class, show to Chippendales. Within days, Steve ran some newspaper spots advertising for 10 waiters and 10 dancers. All had to be at least six foot, muscular body, clean shaven and with no excessive body hair, especially around the G-string region. Well, I'm afraid that rules you out, Barney. My hairy parts usually rule me in. True that. It's not just Goldilocks who can't get enough of a daddy bear like you. It's a blessing and a curse, Tara. All the time back in the days when we were allowed to like leave our houses and go to bars, people were always coming up to Barney and asking if they could try his porridge. That's true, but some of them burnt their mouths because it was too hot. The waiters at Chippendales would just work for tips and dancers would be paid the princely sum of $30 a night. It was late spring in 1978, a day that would go down in history as the birth date of Beefcake when Chippendales premiered its male exotic dance night for ladies only. Hey, baby. Mmm. Flyers advertising the show were delivered to beauty salons and women's clothing stores all over LA. Steve Banerjee declared it to be the first show of its kind anywhere in the US. What about that biker bar he pinched it from? Yeah, like, apart from them. Chippendales received over 200 applications for dancers. After a long interview process, Steve selected his favourite 20 beefcakes. And although they were certainly handsome and charismatic, most of them couldn't dance to save their lives. It didn't matter though. Soon women were drooling and beating down the doors at Chippendales, making it the hottest club in Los Angeles. The who's who of Dinkletown was filling the joint, including Sher, Brooke Shields and Hugh Hefner. All to see Barney and his mates dance. I told you I didn't want you to bring it up while we were recording. Yeah, but why? I think you should be proud of your oiled up groin thrusting past. Yeah, well, I would be, but I never got past the interview stage. Their skimpy costumes inspired by the Playboy bunnies consisted of white collar and cuffs with a black bow tie. Pretty much every woman's dream of an erotic butler. I guess. I've never dreamt of an erotic butler, but now if I do, it'll probably be that because I've been influenced. As the sun went down and the bright neon light sign of Chippendales was turned on, Steve unleashed <laughs> his bare-chested army of Adonises to lure in business from the streets. Women returning from work had their heads turned by the hunky slabs of man muscle. <laughs> <laughs> the hunky slabs of man muscle. <laughs> Oh, come on. That's got to be your next, the name of your next album. Man Muscle. By opening time, a line of man-hungry women stretched two blocks and then wound around the corner. It sounds sordid, but in an age where women could not express themselves about anything without a man explaining how they were wrong, Chippendales was a safe and secure place. I'm so glad mansplaining isn't a thing anymore. It was great to completely eradicate that forever. Well, actually, Tara, that still hasn't happened entirely. I mean, I can understand why your feeble lady brain would think that it has. <sighs> no men were admitted into the club until after the show was over, which was about 10pm. At that time, another line formed out the front. You see, men soon glommed that the juiced-up ladies inside were ripe for the picking after the Chippendale show. Before then, the women were free of any fear of men bothering or taking advantage of them. They pounded their overpriced Cosmos, Manhattans and gin and tonics and packed tightly into the tiered platforms with tiny tables encircling the stage. 
The tension and excitement built up to a dull roar until the show began. Then KC and the Sunshine Band came on loud and the women surged to the front of the stage. The curtain opened and there stood ten instances of male perfection, their glistening bodies dripping with oil and gyrating to the disco music. Five hundred women screamed in unison, Take it off! Whoa. Sounds like our last meet-up. Actually, yeah, yeah. It's like when you and Cambo walked in the joint. Oh, the ladies rushed the stage. That's right. Each dancer had a theme. Such as? Well, you know, the regular stuff. Zorro, Superman, Fireman, Policeman, etc. Ah, okay. Chartered Accountant, Chess Master, High School Janitor. (laughs) High School Janitor. Yeah, I'm sure they had those. (laughs) Women got so excited when they were pulled on stage, they'd sometimes pee themselves. A bare-chested beefcake would come out to clean up the wee with a mop and bucket and then scurry away. So although the floor was no longer covered with threadbare carpet, people's feet still stuck to it. (laughs) They did. Women would fist fight each other over who got a dancer's attention and the Chippendales neighbours complained about women throbbing up in their front yards. (laughs) Oh, God. And, of course, there was the tip and kiss. Oh, God. Yeah, that's just gross for everyone involved. It really is. A dancer would bend down to kiss a patron. The woman would throw their arms around their neck and shove their tongue down the dancer's throat and then stuff cash into the beefcake's G-string. This made the dancers around $200 a night. And spread mouth herpes like wildfire. It's just gross. Most women stayed after the show when the men were let in. Some of the ladies were so lickered up and horny that you'd have to be entirely devoid of charm not to score. In the pre-AIDS world of the late 70s and early 80s, every night there was sex in the bathrooms of the club and even on the dance floor. According to Deadly Dance, The Chippendale Murders by K. Scott MacDonald, one woman, described as being large and middle-aged with bleach blonde hair and bad teeth, offered a dancer $500 to snort cocaine off his penis. He declined, which was rare. I mean, penis cocaine is just unsanitary. Just do it off a toilet seat like everybody else. While every drug you can imagine was being ingested, banging was going on everywhere. In the car park, in cars, under tables and in the toilets, rusty trombone behind the uh, stage and, you know, a bit of a backward wheelbarrow down the front stairs. We'll be back with the conclusion of part one of the Chippendales murder after this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. time is it Barney? It's true crime nerd time. True crime nerd time is an opportunity for you our listeners to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime obsessed itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone. We'll play it or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Nia Thamarcus and she tells us about the book A Solitude of Wolverines by Alice Henderson. And she writes, Greetings, Barney and Tara. I have a book suggestion for True Crime Nerd Time. Alice Henderson has a brand new suspense thriller series launching October 27th with the novel A Solitude of Wolverines. I was lucky to get a preview copy. While it's not true crime, it's a nice palate cleanser with guns, rogue cows, rogue cows, poachers, antique cars and wolverines. Alex Carter is a wildlife conservationist with a soul for the great outdoors. Stifled in Boston, in limbo with her longtime boyfriend and narrowly escaping death in a mass shooting, she leaps at the chance to winter in rural Montana to study wolverines, sounds cool, for a land trust and get some space to re-centre in big sky country. 
She packs more than her hiking gear with her, however. Her near-death experience haunts her, especially the mystery behind the second gunman who saved her life. Yeah, it's not normally what they do, is it? No. Readers will come to know he's more stalker than saviour, and her conservation work has helped keep more than habitat undisturbed. Unfortunately for Alex, Montana is far from the peaceful place she was expecting. Now, too many wolverines, not enough wolverines. I can't remember which. She's nearly run off the road on her first solo trip to town. The lodge she's staying in has multiple murders in its history. Poachers regularly venture on conservation land and there's even sightings of Sasquatch by her neighbours. Oh, I didn't realise that you were ever in the Montana area taking bushwalks, Barney. Sasquatch's got a small dick. That means you do too, champ. Oh, no. When one of her wildlife cameras catches a barefoot injured man running past her camera trap, Alex is convinced there's more going on than just some poaching. Will she survive long enough to figure out what's going on? Well, it is a series of books, so I'm thinking yes. Probably. Unless Sasquatch takes over as the main character. Ah, the small dick Sasquatched. Trilogy. He's got a big heart, though. (laughs) More than makes up for it, I say. Yeah, his big heart makes up for it. Thank you for your amazing podcast. You've made the pandemic suck less. Nia. Oh, thank you. That is a good compliment. I don't want to make it suck more because it sucks a lot already. No, I don't want to make it suck more either. It's really fucking sucks enough. That's enough suck. Cut, Cut the suck. Thanks, Nia. That book is A Solitude of Wolverines by Alice Henderson, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. Everyone knows this year sucks to a raging extent, but I'm starting to feel personally attacked by it. I feel that in my soul. Yeah. Is everything going on in the world at the moment and the way this year is panning out, interfering with your ability to be happy or, I don't know, calm or just in any way human? Is something stopping you from achieving your goals? Have you had as much as you can take and you're just not sure what to do about it? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there is no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. You can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to leave the house. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You could be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as anxiety, grief, trauma, depression and stress. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. If you don't believe us, check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of part one of the Chippendales murder. The Chippendales sexy time mail review was raking in the cash every night. But as old Fonzie said, they weren't all happy days. On August 14th, 1980, Playboy Playmate of the Year and actress Dorothy Stratton was murdered in her house by her abusive estranged husband, Paul Schneider, who then turned the Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun on himself. Yeah, he should have started with that. He should definitely have started with that. He had raped, shot and then mutilated her body after she'd asked him for a divorce. Snyder had worked at Chippendales before the male stripping became a thing. In fact, Snyder had told Steve about the biker bar that had male strippers performing. Snyder also produced a female mud wrestling show, which had bombed, amongst most other things he turned his hand to. 
It was Dorothy Stratton who designed the collars, cuffs and bow ties costume for the dancers based on the Playboy bunny outfits. And Hugh Hefner was cool with it. I asked his permission. He was like, sure, put it on dudes. Hugh Hefner had his own view about why Schneider killed Dorothy. He said a very sick guy saw his meal ticket and his connection to power slipping away. And it was that that made him kill her. Yeah, pretty accurate. Dorothy's murder was a scandal that Chippendales didn't need. Oh, where? Won't somebody think of the Chippendales? <laughs> <sighs> More problems followed. Police put some undercover female detectives in the club. Dickless Tracy's. Yep, that's what they used to call female police in Australia. If a patron so much as touched a dancer, the Dickless Tracys would shut down Chippendales for the night. No more tip and kiss? Oh, well, not really. It didn't stop the women, and the Dickless Tracys couldn't be there every night. Not in an official capacity. Yeah, no, just in a <laughs> sexy capacity. Also, the California Department of Alcohol Beverage Control came down hard on the club over gender discrimination for having a no-men policy until after the show. Oh, where? Once somebody think of the men, where would they drink? Oh, Steve fought it and told a judge in his thick Indian accent, which I'm not going to attempt, we have to create some kind of atmosphere for a show. And the minute you let gentlemen in, that inhibits women and they can't act the way that they would if there's women only. This is a social thing. The way they were raised, they act certain ways in front of men. Nice mansplaining, Steve. I have insight into women now. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Steve. Chippendales also copped a few racial discrimination lawsuits. Not exactly white himself, Steve, told his doorman not to let in African-Americans, Hispanics, Iranians and basically anyone who was not white. In a memo to staff, he wrote, No gang members, real slick drug culturists and gypsies should be admitted. He added to his list people in the armed forces or the navy. To make things worse, Steve was rude and barked orders at staff. Many of his employees started to hate him and complained as much to his long-suffering right-hand man, Ray Cologne, who also copped a lot of crap from Steve. Meanwhile, Steve had fallen in love. Not only with all the dollars pouring in, but he had also met a special human someone. <laughs> Working as a cashier by night and a nurse by day, Aaron Tykowski turned Steve's head in 1978. By 1980, they were living together. But love didn't distract Steve for long, and he worked hard on making Chippendales even more profitable. Video monitors were installed in the bar, hanging from the ceiling, playing X-rated VHS videos of men doing men stuff. Ah, doing the dishes, bathing their kids, maybe sewing on a button or two. <laughs> no, baby. The Chippendales also introduced merchandise. T-shirts, thongs, mugs, playing cards... Black bow tie hats, videos, and the real money spinner, calendars. What the fuck is a black bow tie hat? Well, I would imagine it's a hat with a bow tie on it. But, like, why Why wouldn't they just sell, like, the bow tie thing I don't, rather than it? Uh, Do they look, wear I don't know. Bow ties I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's not important. I'm not ever gonna, I'm not, We're moving I, on. I We're moving on. No, I don't know. It's making me feel a bit cranky because <laughs> I don't understand it. Steve was more than ambitious, Tara. He wanted to make Chippendales into a TV show featuring bowtie hats, have a club in every city, and have a Disney-like Chippendales World theme park. Oh, golly gosh. Imagine the rides. Woo. You'd take your kids to that, wouldn't you? Ah, oh, fun for the whole family. Come on, Nana. We're all going to Chippendales World. On December 3rd, 1978, Steve called Ray at his home and asked him to meet him at Chippendales. Although Ray was still on the payroll at a reduced wage and did various things for Steve, he had not been at the club for a few weeks. His wife Barbara had banned him from Chippendales when she learned Ray had been playing hide little Ray with some of the patrons. <laughs> not cool, Ray. Nah, not cool. Ray reluctantly agreed to meet him after Steve told him he had an important job he needed him to do. When Ray arrived at the office, Steve told him what he was about to say could not leave the room. Perplexed, Ray agreed. Steve explained that two new clubs had just opened and they were stealing all his business. Ray doubted this as Chippendales was sold out every night. The clubs, Osco's on Lasenga and Moody's in Santa Monica, had to be dealt with, Steve told him. How? Ray asked. I want you to burn them to the ground, Steve replied. 
Ray shook his head and tried to talk Steve out of it, but the Chippendale's owner was determined and threw an envelope across the desk to Ray containing $7,000. Ray eyed the envelope and thought about his financial situation. He was getting less money from Steve per week and he was hurting financially. So much so, he had taken a job managing an apartment complex called the Overland Palms a few blocks from Chippendales and had a part-time gig as a traffic instructor as well. Also, his mob friend, Rocky Delamo, had recently been pinched by the feds, so there was no work there. Ray had done collections for Rocky, roughed up a few people, but never arson, and the job didn't sit well with him. Ray scratched his chin and possibly his ass, and thought, I could not do shit and just take the money. It's not like Steve could do anything to me. Ray took the envelope and told his friend to consider the job done. Ray Cologne, to his word, did exactly that. So he torched the clubs? Not exactly. The first thing, he didn't do shit, and it seemed to work. The days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months. Then one day in early 1979, several months after Steve had asked him to perform a sport of arson, Ray received a call from a very angry Steve Banerjee. What the fuck are you trying to pull, demanded Steve. About what, replied Ray, but he knew. You've got some fires to light, yelled Steve. All that, yeah, working on it, explained Ray. Steve gave Ray an ultimatum. Get it done or give me back my 7K. But Ray didn't have the 7K. He'd spend it on useful stuff like jet skis. Actually, we don't know if he did that, but it's usually a safe assumption. It was then Ray decided to actually go through with the job. Ray consulted with his buddy and fellow low-level wise guy Leon Defina. Ray explained to Leon that he didn't want any of Rocky's crew involved. Ray knew they'd get the job done and then they'd blackmail Steve and bleed him dry until they owned Chippendales. Yep, that's pretty much how the mob works. From my limited experience of watching Sopranos anyway. Yeah. Ray asked Leon if he knew a couple of dodgy dudes from the street they could get to do it or as he put it, some punks with big balls and tiny brains. Leon did indeed know some junky knuckleheads who fit the bill. Now, we can't use their real names, so let's call them Big Balls and Tiny Brains. Ray found them just where Leon said they'd be, out the front of a 7-Eleven. Big Balls, all 200 pounds of him, was leaning against a wall smoking a cigarette, while Tiny Brains, looking like a 60-year-old teenager, was digging something out of his ear with a rolled-up $1 bill. Ray introduced himself and told them about the job. Big Balls said they could handle anything if the price was right. Ray seriously doubted that, but thought, how hard could lighting a fucking fire be? Ray had already checked out one of the intended targets of fiery retribution. Moody's was half the size of Chippendales, did a brisk business, but did not seem at all a threat to Steve's club. Ray drove them to the job with two jerry cans full of petrol in his trunk. Within five minutes of dropping them in an alley behind Moody's, the boys jumped back in the car and yelled, Drive! Is the job done? asked Ray. Fuck yeah, burn baby, burn, disco inferno, replied Tiny Brains. <laughs> I like Tiny Brains. Ray's tyres squealed as they took off. The trio drove across town to an all-night diner where they listened but did not hear the wail of fire truck sirens. Sometimes fires just go out. Ray was pissed. He called the pair useless cunts and told them to fuck off. The boys asked if they were still getting paid. Ray said fuck no, but relented when Big Balls looked like he was going to start crying. He gave them $100 each and sent the bumbling pair on their way. The next morning, Steve rang Ray, waking him from a deep slumber. Steve had heard the news about the fire and was angry to learn there was no real damage done. Moody's was still in business. In fact, they were setting up for the lunch trade. Steve yelled at Ray about wanting his money back and then calmly said, forget Moody's, there was two other clubs he wanted torch first. Ray agreed, said goodbye and hung up thinking, I'll stall him as long as possible and eventually he'll forget about it. It was time again to just not do shit. In the next few months, Ray didn't hear from Steve and decided to change career. In an ironic twist of fate, Ray joined the police force. That is ironic. After passing his police officer standard training test, he became a reserve police officer in Palm Springs. Meanwhile, Chippendales was still making buckets of cash, but Steve wanted more. 
Burning down the competition was not working, so Steve thought making the show more glitzy and glamorous would do the trick. Enter Nick DeNoia, a five-time Emmy-winning Broadway choreographer and children's television producer. Steve hired the well-respected DeNoia in late 1981. Steve had been trying to get DeNoia for the past five years, and it was well worth the wait, Tara. His revamped show was a huge success. Steve's attorney, Bruce, later said, Steve's show had been for girls. Denoy's show was for women. Ah, oh, so the erotic dancers used to dress as unicorns, but now they offered to cook dinner. Oh, that's just sexist. Oh, you mansplain it to me more, motherfucker. Hungry eyes. You see, Tara. <laughs> Shut up, hungry eyes. Uh, Murphy Brown. That's not even offensive. She was a trailblazer. Denoya was gay but not openly and had once been married to the 1970s movie star Jennifer O'Neill. Denoya told the dancers, I'm your audience, make me want you. He added rock, pop and heavy metal music into the production and ramped up the choreography with martial arts move, jazz, gymnastics, ballet and even break dancing. Do you want to see those beefcakes pop? Ah, oh, I want to see them jazz hands. <laughs> <laughs> One new routine featured Tarzan jerking off a plastic banana, culminating in its spurting lotion over the screaming women. I really don't understand the attraction, but, you know, maybe you just had to be there. It was quite popular. While Steve was dealing with overcrowding complaints from the fire department and various lawsuits for race and gender discrimination, Denoy was making his show bigger, better and brighter, which, of course, made it more profitable. Soon the Chippendales opened another location in New York City, a club named Magic. Yeah, with a Q-U-E because it's fancy like that. Twice the size of the LA club, it too was soon packed to the rafters and bringing in truckloads of cash. Chippendale's dancers with Nick DeNoyer appeared on Phil Donahue and on Sally Jesse Raphael amongst other talk shows and the brand became a national phenomenon. Problem was, DeNoyer was now the face of the Chippendales, not Steve. This really pissed off Steve and so began the war with DeNoyer. Denoyer wanted more of a share of the business. He thought he deserved it. He had turned the moderately successful dance troupe into a national sensation. But to Steve, Denoyer was just an employee. They argued openly every time they met. It got so bad that Denoyer based himself on the other side of the country in New York just to get away from Steve. Steve's lawyer acted as a go-between for the feuding pair, but things went from bad to really bad to all-out World War III. Denoyer threatened to leave and create a rival show. Steve said he would sue him for breach of contract. Bruce Nain, Steve's attorney, was asked to sort it out, but he'd been crisscrossing the country enforcing Chippendale's trademark against other clubs that were doing Chippendale's-like shows. The latest one was a group in New Mexico called the Chunkendales, which consisted of men with more than tubby dad bods strutting their stuff. Apparently they were huge. Okay. Not popular, but huge. They got a hand-delivered cease and desist letter. Like that one I gave to you to try and make you stop calling me Suddenly Susan or Murphy Brown. And the one I gave you to stop you insisting I have a frog bottom. Hmm, sounds legally binding, Hungry Eyes. <laughs> You'll get another letter for that, by the way. <laughs> Finally, Denoya had a proposal for Steve that might make the peace. Denoya wanted 50% of the touring rights. Steve thought to himself, bargain! The Chippendales don't tour. What's 50% of nothing? They met at a cafe in New York and Steve grabbed a napkin and wrote, I, Steve Banerjee, full owner of the Chippendales, do hereby award Nick Denoya on this 13th day of November 1984, 50% of all monies received from touring rights involving the Chippendales dancers minus any and all expenses. Steve signed the napkin and threw it at Denoya. Steve wasn't worried. He planned on opening more clubs in more cities and even if the Chippendales did tour, like the profits would be pretty small. Steve couldn't have been more wrong. In fact, he was wronger than a duck wearing arseless chaps. Soon after the napkin deal, Steve got in contact with Ray. Ray Cologne was no longer a policeman after it was discovered in a routine physical that Ray had polycystic kidneys. Out of all the reasons Ray could no longer be a policeman, that is not the one I was expecting. 
Yeah, me either. Like, seriously, there are so many. Ray was back to managing the Overland Apartments and teaching traffic school. To supplement the meagre wages, Ray would occasionally rob drug dealers with his mate Leon Dufina. You see, that that's the thing why he shouldn't yeah. be a policeman. That's one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's one indeed. Yeah, that's correct. Steve told Ray he was still having the same problems. Rival clubs were stealing his business. The focus of Steve's hatred were two clubs, Bentley's and a club named Pearl Harbor. He wanted them both torched. Ray wanted nothing to do with it, but Steve reminded him of the 7K he owed him. Ray again reluctantly agreed and enlisted the help of Mike Alvarez, who had done some work for the Mexican cartels, and a $300 a day heroin addict named Louis Lopez. What could possibly go wrong? I can't imagine. Together they threw Molotov cocktails through the windows of the closed Pearl Harbor Club. But this wasn't like 1941. Not at all. And pretty much like Ray's last attempt at arson, it was a dismal failure. Sometimes fires just go out. Actually, it was the night janitor. He smelt the smoke and put it out. And then he did a dance. Woo! No, that's the high school janitor, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, it was the night janitor. He smelt the smoke and put it out. There was just some minor damage to the carpet. Steve was livid. Meanwhile, Nick DeNoyer began touring a troupe of the Chippendales dancers, first in Philadelphia and then Atlantic City. When Steve learned of the tours, he got so angry, steam came out of his ears and his ass. Hating to see someone else making money, Steve started his own tours. He had no problem finding more dancers. Over 5,000 applied for the positions. At first, Steve's Chippendale tours only went to cities across the United States and Canada, but it wasn't long before he added dates in cities across Europe and then Africa, Guam, Hong Kong, the Philippines and Australia. The Chippendales even played at the famous Strand Theatre in London. The British women went mad for the oil-drenched rippling muscles and straining G-strings of the Chippendales. I particularly enjoy it when the school janitor comes on the stage. Of course, all this line denies pockets as well as Steve's. Chippendales also opened new clubs in Dallas and Denver and was now world famous, making Steve and Denoyer multi-millionaires. But Steve wanted it all and thought Denoyer deserved nothing as he was just an employee. Denoyer thought he deserved more as it was he who had turned the Chippendales into a gold mine. Steve sued DeNoyer and DeNoyer sued him back. It didn't help that in 1987, Steve printed one million copies of the Chippendales calendar with every month having 31 days. That fuck-up cost Steve $700,000 and he had nobody to blame for himself for he oversaw the production. Still seething from DeNoyer getting 50% of all his touring profits, Steve offered DeNoyer $1 million to buy out his share. Denoyer refused. The next day, Steve called Ray into his office complaining about Denoyer and said to him, I want the ultimate done. Ray couldn't believe it. He whispered to Steve, You want me to kill Nick Denoyer? Steve narrowed his eyes and he nodded and said, Yes. Make sure you tune into the next episode of Bloody Murder for the deadly conclusion of the Chippendales murder. Whoa, what a story! Yes, it, yes, and there's heaps more to come. So many shenanigans. It's, uh, it's going to continue to be a wild ride with uh, all the other murder plots that he had going as well and just a, a hell of a lot of shenanigans and tomfoolery. I have but one question. Yes, Frog Bottom. What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? All right then. So Barney... If you were a drug courier driving a van with millions of dollars worth of ice in it, what are some things you'd do? I'd probably start with rethinking my life choices. Yeah, that's a good start. Uh, then what? I'd make sure the van was roadworthy and the rego was up to date so I could avoid getting noticed by the police. Avoid getting noticed by the police. See, that's good advice. Advice that a 28-year-old cafe manager named Simon too could have used. At around 10.30am on July 22nd, 2019, Simo was in fact working as a drug courier when he did the exact opposite of that in quite a spectacular fashion. 
According to news.com.au, Simo happened to be driving a white Toyota Hi-Ace van past the Eastwood Police Station in New South Wales when he crossed onto the wrong side of the road and smashed into two stationary police cars that were parked out the front of the cop shop. Whoa. After causing extensive damage to the cars, Simo drove away from the scene without stopping. He scampered. There were several witnesses who gave police a description of the van, which had sustained a fair whack of damage from hitting running those cop cars. About an hour later, police tracked down the van after figuring out its license plate from CCTV and dash cam footage. When they approached Simo, he wouldn't make eye contact with them and was fidgety as fuck. He told the police he was delivering pizzas that he'd picked up from Pizza Hut in Eastwood, but the police could smell no such pizzas. When they checked the back of the van, they instead discovered 13 cardboard boxes full of ice, 260 kilos or 40 plus stone to be exact. Pizza and ice really don't smell the same, do they? No, they do not. When police asked Simo how much the drugs are worth, he replied, a lot. It's like like both of us and then maybe some more people worth of drugs. This week, Simo had his day in court and his lawyer took, well, a novel and honest approach to the case, telling the judge that Simo was not involved in the drug trade in any way other than being a courier and pointing out that he was a shit one at that. He went on to describe Simo as hopeless, negligent and shambolic. The judge nodded in agreement and said, I accept that submission. Shambolic is a good word. Shambolic is a good word. We should use it more. (laughs) I noticed you did. An expert witness took the stand to say the wholesale value of the 260 kilos of ice in 2019 was more than $23 million and could fetch up to $150 million on the street. No doubt fearing for his life, Simo has never given a clear explanation of how he came to be carrying the drugs or who he was doing it for. Well, yeah, I mean, with that kind of money. In an even more bizarre twist, police were uncertain whether Simo had the drugs in the van when he hit the cop cars or if he went and got them afterwards. You'd have to be pretty daft to pick up the drugs after the cops were looking for you. Yeah, look, that's true. But as a species, us humans can be incredibly stupid. But yeah, I reckon he probably had them at the time. There was no evidence that Simo was further involved with the drugs. The truck was, of course, dusted for prints, and Simos were only in the front of the truck, not in the back or on the drug boxes or anything at all. The judge seemed to believe Simo didn't know the quantity or value of the drugs he was carrying at the time, but said it was clear he knew it was a substantial amount. The judge sentenced Simo to six years and six months, but he'll be eligible for parole in July 2023. Uh, It could have been much worse. He could have been put away for up to 20 years. So his lawyer's tactic proved to be a good one. If I've learned one thing from this podcast, it's that uh, people will kill other people in this country for $2,000 and a used hatchback that reeks of menthol cigarettes. So it was probably wise for Simo not to talk too much. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Jenny from The Block from Australia. Berg24 from Canada. We got Brucen from the USA. And Bands, mmm, though. Ah, we'd also like to thank the lovely Lorraine for all the work she does helping me run the Facebook group. You know who else is awesome? Our patrons. We love them. We love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways. The winner of our August prize, the Bloody Murder Backpack, was Fiona Griffin. Our September prize is a keep kicking a gangster pricks coffee mug. Present your worldview as you drink your coffee black just like your soul. For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. Stephanie Lormay. Blair Stackhouse. Jean Breeden. Sharon May. Gina LaFaro, Adrian Goff, Vanessa Allen, Sheila Finlay, and Lee Mitchell. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, our Facebook page, or our IMDb page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a hey baby would still count. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us remain shambolic and oiled up in our cuffs, collars, and boots.
ties and our bow tie hats. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and links to our threadless merchandise. Follow us uh, through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod, and Instagram, we're bloody underscore murder underscore podcast. Thanks for sticking around, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Steve had the idea of turning it into a fancy back gap back 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 gap club. <laughs> back it I'm up. I'm a gammon. fucking chook. I'm a fucking chicken. Yeah, back 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 The trio speculated Destiny Two could have the same makeover. They called the look opulent ambulance. 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 <laughs> opulent ambulance. That's what fancy people take to the hospital. <laughs> 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 it's a weird kind of like interior design style though I've got to say I mean there's, there's a lot of like equipment and like you know gauze gauze <laughs> gauze guaranteed to deliver a more discerning and wealthy patron to the hospital to the hospital <laughs> I have a book suggestion for true crime nerd time. Alice Henderson. Alice Henderson. Henderson. That's a hard word to say. Henderson. How do you pronounce that? Henderson? Hen- I, I think it's uh, Honduras. Honduras. Is that it? Honduras. <laughs> it sounds like you called me an asshole. You're an asshole. <laughs> it is. Oh, good. You're right. Yeah, well, I know you're always keeping an ear out for someone to confirm that for you. Wow. I prefer the term arsehat. Arsehat, yeah, it's a bit more savoury, isn't it? It is, and you can and it, it, it and it stops you from getting skin cancer or sunburn. It's wearable. Yeah, it's wearable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unlike the other one. Soon the Chippendales open another location in New York City, a club named Magic. Yeah, with a Q U E because it's fancy like that. Twice the size of the L. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's fancy like that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds French. Oh, look at that thrill fancy. It's got Q-U-E at the end of it. It's like, it's like an erotic dancer from France. Fancy like that. Magic. <laughs> the focus on Steve's hatred were two clubs, Bentley's and a club named Pearl Harbor. And I don't know if it's just me, but I still haven't figured out, like what the sexy sort of double meaning to Pearl Harbor is. Maybe it's a, a sex position or something that we haven't heard. Oh, the Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey baby, you want to do the Pearl Harbor tonight? Oh, God, I think I'm up for that, love. I don't know, man. Yeah, I'm tired. I'm going to bed early. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty keen. I've had several G&Ts and, oh, let's go into the toilets together. Yeah, no, that's pretty much a Saturday night thing, uh, honey. Oh, but it's Sunday today. Ah, oh, missed out. Got to wait till next week. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.